So I'll wait okay. for you to let us know. Okay, good. Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus. Titus chapter 2. We'll be picking up at verse 6. You arrived here today without a Bible. We'd like for you to follow along. And there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. But if anybody here needs a Bible, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Everybody good? Well, then go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, Titus chapter 2. I'll start reading at verse 6, and we'll go all the way to verse 8. <laughs> Going to have a marathon here today. Paul writes to this young pastor, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Father, once again, we just lift up your word, and we just pray that you would bless us in it. Use these things, Father, I pray, as a checklist for how we minister, but Lord, also how we act. And so we lift up this morning again, asking for your, well, just the knowledge of your, your presence here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As we've seen in our introduction in the last few weeks. The book of Titus is an epistle that is filled with characteristics of a Christian congregation. So far, we've seen the necessary elements of a pattern of a pastor. When considering a church, you must consider the man behind the pulpit, and if the man behind the pulpit is teaching the Word of God, the man behind the pulpit should be living the Word of God. Last week, we examined the elderly of the church, the seasoned saints an encouragement that they would fulfill their responsibilities in the body of Christ. Why? Because our responsibilities in the body of Christ never end. You always have something to give. God has reason and purpose for everybody within his church. A person who is filled with the Holy Spirit always has the ability to fulfill God's will. And it's Paul's desire through the Holy Spirit that this young pastor would know that men who are mature and women as well would have a passion about the ministry. They wouldn't just get old and fade away, but they would push on and fight to the end. His desire would be that they would continue in true Christian fellowship. That's what we saw last week. Opportunities for godly discipleship, times of heartfelt companionship, and occasions to teach wise stewardship. But now as we enter in, as we continue on, we need to take note. Something very important as far as within ministry, the relationships that we have. Well, one of the biggest, most obvious relationships or integrations, however you want to say it, is the relationship between men and women at the church. It's important for men to understand from the perspective of what their calling is. It's for women to understand from the perspective, well, when you approach the pastor or another male leader in the church, what is proper and what is right. We get a little picture of that here in Paul's instruction. Take note that Paul instructed Titus that it would be the older women who were to train the younger women. 
in verse 4 when it says they admonish the other one, younger women. That means that they are to train them. They're to train them through speech and they're to train them through action. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't tell Titus to do that. He told Titus to train up the older women, the mature women in the church, to train the younger women. But what was Titus to do? Well, we saw in verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. He's telling Titus that he is to become involved in the ministry to the younger men. He's to give personal instruction to these younger men. When it comes to the younger ladies, he tells Titus, you would encourage the older women to minister to them. When it comes to the younger men, it's you who are to minister to them. So a male leader, when it comes to women, he's saying, hands off. When it comes to the younger men, he's saying, be hands on. And now our section of scripture brings us to the point of the ministry to the less mature male, the young men. Now the young men... It's a broad description, and biblically speaking, it will usually refer to those of marrying age up into around those of 60 years old. And so, looking at what is being said here, and as I go into the details of it, it really does apply to all of our lives. But again, this is a focal point of how these young men are to conduct their lives. We saw earlier when we studied the book of Timothy that the Apostle Paul said, 2 Timothy 2.22 to young Timothy, flee also youthful lust. Put those things behind you. But he's telling him to have a passion, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord in a pure heart. Set aside those worldly lusts that when the days that you were driven by your flesh, but get together with like-minded men. Get together with like-minded guys and pursue these things. What that's telling me here is all of us, male or female, pastor or person, we need to be proactive in our Christian life. You can't be sitting around just waiting for somebody to approach you and to instruct you and teach you. You've got to, be pro- You've got to seek after these things. You have to have a desire for them and even a passion. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy again when he says, pursue righteousness. So again, question's got to be asked. Are you pursuing righteousness? Question needs to be asked from me to you, but first I've got to ask it to myself because we can so easily fall into religious routine. But see, again, those people who had fallen into religious routine, those were the ones who Jesus had the strongest words against while he walked this earth. And so I've got to consider Has this become a cushy job, just some easy way to conduct my life? Or am I still having a passion in my own Christian life, in my own relationship with God and seeking out righteousness? And you need to question yourself and you need to ask yourself that question as well. And so Titus's ministry to these younger men is to be in an exhorted manner. We're to exhort one another. We're not here to correct one another. Now, correction will come about. God will use that, but through exhortation, through encouraging people in their Christian life. You come to church to be beat up, but you're not going to come very long. But if you come to church and you're encouraged, then you're going to plug into that. You're going to be able to gather from that, and you're going to be able to move forward because of it as well. And so... If I'm going to have impact in the church, I must consider that. Am I an encourager 
or am I a driver? We saw this when we were studying John chapter 10 when uh, we looked at the good shepherd. We saw that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they follow him. And we pointed out that you never see a shepherd driving sheep. They're not cattle, they're sheep. And it's probably one of the reasons why we have that example. They hear the voice of their shepherd and they follow him. They follow him because they love him. They understand that he cares for him and watches out for him. And really what they're understanding is this concept of exhortation. We saw it when we studied, I believe it was the book of Philippians. What does exhortation mean? It doesn't just looking down on somebody less mature and saying, coming on. It's getting down to their level and seeing them raised to maturity with you. That you would go down because you are the more mature. You're willing to follow that biblical example of humbling yourself for the benefit of somebody else. You come down to their level. You meet them at that level and you raise up. Never is anybody to be isolated in the body of Christ from the leadership down to the member who's sitting in the pew. We are all to integrate with one another, to encourage one another, and to strengthen one another. That's the reason, that's the purpose for church. That's why God said, don't neglect the gathering together of the brethren. Why? Because you so easily slip away and you fade away, and then all of a sudden, your relationship with the Lord is never what it can be. As I've said so many times, when you see somebody alone in the Bible, apart from maybe just a momentary time for prayer, whatever it might be, but when you see somebody alone, it's very rarely, if ever, a good thing. And so, for a biblical pattern and how to encourage younger men, both physically and spiritually, we've got the pastoral epistles. And the most effective manner of instruction is taking those things, those concepts that are presented in the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus, and to do these things, to set that pattern. It's again what we're told here in verse 7. Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. He's telling Titus, instruct these men. Well, it's obvious he's going to instruct them verbally, but he's also telling them, don't just leave it to the verbal instruction. He's telling them, show yourself to these guys to be a pattern of good works. Become involved in the fabric of the church so that you will become involved in the fabric of their lives, that they will be able to see you as you are hands-on in their lives. I have an opportunity in, um, on the 28th of, uh, of this month, it's a Saturday morning, I'll be up in the mountains with our kids. I have an opportunity to teach our children, our, our high schoolers, at the retreat up there. And I was asked to do so, and how could you possibly say no? An opportunity to be there, to be amongst them, to display the care, because it is an important thing, a desire for them to be there, and to be able to minister to them, and to be able to have that, that hands-on time. Not that I'm going to be there the whole weekend, but nonetheless, just the bit that I'm able to have. And we need, all need to look at that. You exhibited some of that. When we had the, the um, on the 18th, we had the fundraiser, the bake sale fundraiser. We raised over $900. And not everybody bought something to eat. Some people just gave money to that cause. And we were able to reduce their cost. I think it was like from 130 down to $96. And what a blessing that is. That's the body of Christ getting together for the purpose of seeing people grow in Jesus Christ. And it's just such an awesome thing when we see these things happening. 
So whether you're a man or a woman, the absolute worst thing you can do as an example is preach biblical concepts and live according to worldly ways. People will see right through that, and especially those who are younger, those who are looking for a pattern of life. And as they've seen this Word of God that up until that point has been hammered inside of them, but then they look to you and to see really the importance of this. They've been told of the importance, but then they want to see the importance. Are you an older person, a person who has influence over somebody younger, Are you living a life that is going to be influential in their lives? Are you setting the standard? Are you setting the the pattern? The most effective way to ensure that your children will not have a Christian life, to live a life, was to preach these things, but then live apart from these things. Because nobody wants anything to do with hypocrisy. See, a biblical example, a biblical pattern, it will leave a mark. It will leave an indelible mark upon their lives. They'll see that this Bible that can seem so far off if it's not lived out, they'll see how it's able to be digested in a life, in a human life, and exhibited in a human life. They'll see the reality of what it means for Christ to dwell inside of them. I mean, think of this Christianese that we use all the time and how far out there it is. I mean, again, for somebody who's less mature or doesn't understand the Bible, Christ lives within me? What does that mean? The power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us? What in the world does that mean? I mean, we hear these things and we kind of just become blasé in our mind, but in actuality, these are real truths that the Bible speaks to us. What does that mean? And don't tell me what it means. Show me what it means. Because again, if you're a a young man, a young child, whoever it might be, yeah, well, that can just seem so abstract. Show me the reality of it in a life because they probably want to see Christ lived out in their lives. But if they're not watching Christ, if they're not able to view Christ lived out in your life, then they're probably going to think like father, like son, as dad did, so will I. If dad thinks it's more important to sit at home and watch a football game than at some point, so will I. Yeah, they made me go to school or Christian school, whatever, Bible study for all of those years, but never had an impact upon dad, probably won't have an impact upon me. Turn it into a Father's Day study. But nonetheless, we've got to see the importance of this because it was Christ who set the example. He came, why? So that we could see. He set the example in so many different areas of his instruction so that we would see and that we would know. And then the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they took it throughout the world and even throughout eternity, even into our lives. Thomas, who was a doubter, he was somebody he needed to see. He needed that example. In John chapter 20, verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, that example, and put my finger into the print of the nails, that example, and put my hand into his side, the piercing, the example of the piercing, I will not believe. Well, what did he need to do? He didn't even really need to put his hands because in John chapter 20, when Jesus appeared before Thomas, we don't see him touching him at all. We just see him seeing these things. And it brought him to the point, my Lord and my God. And so Christ probably is not going to physically walk into anybody's life other than he will through you. 
through the person who considers themselves to be mature. If you're truly mature in the Lord, then you are displaying the Lord Jesus Christ to those whom you have influence over. And again, that's one of the essentials and one of the keys to Christianity. It's not just sitting here listening to a sermon or sitting in a small group Bible study year after year after year. It's taking those things, digesting those things, and doing those things. See, I already have the Word of God. I could come up here. What more do I need to do? I'll just read it. I'd save a lot of time. I'd play a lot more golf. We'd probably get a lot more of the Bible done. I'll just read it to you. But an integral part of God's Word is to digest it into a human life. And really, that's my purpose. It's what I try to do up here, is show you the reality and the how applicable God's word is to our daily lives and how once we digest these things, then we are able to do these things as well. Nobody here is going to do them in perfection, but we have to at least move forward and make that effort. And as we make that effort, that's when you see the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, so many people, well, I've never really seen the Holy Spirit working in my life. Well, have you ever even put forth the effort? Because again, it's that which God blesses and that which God uses. I really believe that that's why he called the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul, by nature, was a passionate man. Before he knew Jesus Christ, he was passionate for the Old Testament and the ways of the Old Testament to such a degree that he even persecuted the church. But then he realized the truth of it all. And when he realized the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ, now he's a passionate man for the gospel of the Lord. And so God plugged into that, and as God plugged into that, this man who exhibited his passion, he was now filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was used in an amazing way. And there's no reason why any of us would not be able to be used to that very same degree today. That's all we would need would be a passion for the heart of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, Paul says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. He's speaking of that personal relationship that he had with the church, that hands-on relationship. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. Can you say that to somebody? I remember my dad saying, don't do what I do, do what I say. That doesn't fly. Because what did I do? I did just as dad did. My dad was an engineer. I was very mechanically inclined. My dad, he had four kids. I got four kids. My dad, my dad had a house and he bought a bigger house because he got more kids. I did the same thing. And you can look at a lot of parallels with my, my dad. And a lot of things he told me I didn't do, but a lot of things he exemplified to me that I did do. And so is there, can you go to somebody less mature than you and say, imitate me? And you can think of the sinful things. Well, that would display the grace of God. So can you go to somebody less mature and say, imitate me? Can you go to your children and say, you know what? You need to be an on-fire, born-again believer. Follow my example. Can you say that to your kids? Again, we need to consider these things because truly time is of the essence. Look at it this way. How big of a heart do you have for your children? Now, in the Bible, hands are a metaphor. Stay with me here. Hands are a metaphor for our works. Now, it's been said, how big is your heart? It's the size of your hands. How big are your works? 
however big your works are, are going to display the heart that you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. The outward expression of your faith is going to display the heart that you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. And your kids are going to look at you, and your kids are going to look at you and see where your passions are. And, and, you know, how many people are going to be sitting in a living room today? I think the Cowboys are playing. I don't remember who's all playing. With some kind of jersey. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to lose, Roberta. No? Okay. Who are they playing? Green Bay. Okay. Anyway, some people are going to be sitting around. Roberta's going to be sitting around with a big star on her chest. (laughs) And other people in green jerseys. And then there's going to be a little kid sitting there with a jersey on because dad is sitting there with a jersey on. I got bad news, Roberta. My dad was a Green Bay fan, and so I was a Green Bay fan until I became a teenager and I rebelled and I became a Ram fan until I found the foolishness of my ways. But again, the kid's going to follow the example of the father, going to walk in the footsteps of the father, or in the church, they're going to follow in the footsteps of those who are mature, who have set that example, where's your heart for the Lord? Biblical consistency of life is to be balanced with biblical doctrine that produces righteousness repeated. And righteousness repeated has been going on and on and on since Jesus Christ commissioned the 12 apostles. So, what he tells them here to instruct the younger men, to display to the younger men, to be sober-minded in all things. Sober-minded, this means to have common sense, good judgment, and self-control. Well, very few young men have that. Yeah, because they need to be taught it. And there's nothing worse than a child who has not been taught those things. Somebody who is out of control with no good judgment and no common sense is just a pain in the neck. And so he's telling you, you've got to instruct. These things don't just come natural because that's the flesh. You're, you're to instruct these people. Now, again, to, to be an example, well, if you go back, it says in verse 2, that the older man be sober. And so through you being sober-minded, display that to the younger men. Now, in past studies, we know that self-control is to be a fruit of the Spirit. And so you've got to display that to these younger people, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit or under the influence of the Holy Spirit, And it's then that they're able to be sober-minded. Because again, these things we we teach apart from the Lord and apart from the Holy Spirit, somebody will try them, and in the flesh, for all good intents and purposes, try to make these part of their lives, they'll fail and they'll give up. The only way that we can do these things and overcome our flesh is according to the Spirit, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. So... These things, as in all of our Christian life, are to be done in God who empowers us. And we see King David is a great example. He's a young man, but he's a young man who's very sober-minded. Dad says, bring some food out to your brothers. They're kind of stalled in their military campaign. He goes out there, and I was there when we were in Israel. There's some hills off to one side some hills off to another side, and there's probably 300 yards of valley that is there. And so he goes up, and he's probably wondering what's going on, because this is a sober-minded young man. This is the army of God. And, and those are the armies of the world, and the flesh, and the devil. And how come nothing's happening here? How come God's people aren't moving forward? 
And it's because this sober-minded young man understands the power of the living God that he is able to work a change that is an amazing thing. In 1 Samuel 17, 26, he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so because David was proactive, because he was sober-minded in understanding the power of God, he was able to move forward. And then later on, there's a list, he was able to influence his guys as well. That his guys were able to do things beyond their ability because they saw the example of David doing that. See, the thing about it is, all of your children, anybody that you're able to influence who's less mature than you at some point in their life, they're going to face a giant. They're going to face some sort of giant. Financial uh, opportunity to go down the road of drugs or drink or you know just whatever it might be. There's going to be some sort of giant in their life because there's some sort of giants in all of their lives. Something that is bigger, more powerful than they are, and a lot more ugly as well. But are they going to face it the way David did through the power of the living God? Or are they going to try and face it in the flesh? That's the reason Israel's army wasn't moving. They weren't sober-minded. They were just looking at things and kind of depending upon their own understanding. That guy's bigger than we are. I'm not going down there. But David understands he's bigger than me, but I'm going down there because my God is bigger than him. And so David was able to get Goliath. But see, if your children never see you facing your giants and slaying your giants through the power of God, then they're never going to confront the giants in their lives. And what happens when you don't confront the giants? They rule over you. They'll rule over you. And as they rule over you, they'll render you spiritually ineffective and really they'll seek to destroy a life. Secondly, Paul tells Titus, take your good example of sober-mindedness and teach them by example good works. Again, we see this in verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. This is not what is superficially or cosmetically good, but a manner of good, solid, godly behavior. This is to show them the necessity to not sacrifice biblical integrity on the altar of worldly success. Where is it that you put your priorities? Do you put your priorities on the world and the things of the world? Then your children are going to make those their priorities. Do you put your priorities on the Lord or the things of the Lord? If you do, then they're going to make that your priority. And so, again, you have to examine through the landscape of your family and your ministry to your children, what is it that I am really making a priority? My dad, he took us to church. He took us to church pretty much every Sunday, unless something more important was going on. And there was a lot of compromises in that. Now, I'm not saying don't go on vacation. I'm not saying, you know, you get a chance to go to a you know, football game once in a while. or so, You know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying throughout the whole scheme of things, what is your priority? And if you don't know, if you're not sure, ask your kid. He'll tell you. He'll be real honest with you. And that can be really convicting. It could even be hard to hear. hear. But see, compromise, compromise kills. They need to know and understand what your priority is. Display the balance of their secular schooling versus spiritual instruction and show them how those two things integrate together. 
Show them how hard work out in your job works together with being that Christian witness. We're going to see that next week. Show them that, yeah, it is necessary to put forth the hours, but just make sure that Jesus Christ is the priority as you're in the midst of all of these things, that they would see the reality of it. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we should live in them. Thirdly, we are to be an example of pure doctrine through integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Verse 7, In all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. The degree of reverence in which your children hold the word of God will be in direct proportion to the degree of reverence that you hold it. How important is the Bible? If it's real important, wouldn't you be reading it to them every day? If it's real important, wouldn't you be studying it to prepare to give it to them? And again, the importance that you place upon it is going to be the same importance that they place upon it. A couple dictionary definitions, or at least biblical dictionary definitions. Integrity. That word integrity means unstained. The biggest stain to the word of God is a life that is lived contrary to it. Have you stained the witness to those whom you've been given opportunity to teach and train and instruct or exhort? Reverence, reverence speaks of seriousness. This is understanding and showing a true belief that the word of God is just that. It's God's word. That this is useful for living a Christian life in this day. You know, what's one of the arguments against this? This book was written so long ago. Well, if we truly believe that it's God-breathed, that it's the Word of God, it's going to have relevance in our lives today. You need to display that to them. The importance that I must, as the more mature one, I must read this, I must digest it, and I must do it as well. If I told you God was going to be here tonight, that you know, he, he gave me this revelation, and he's to Sunday night service, probably our least attended service, he's going to be here tonight. First of all, if I ever tell you that, don't ever come back to this church. But let's just say, you know, he, he's going to be here and you're thoroughly convinced. You'd probably show up. I mean, wouldn't you? Well, he's here every time the word of God is open. And so why would I show up, you know, if he's physically going to be here versus, well, he is physically here. And again, I have to understand the seriousness of how I perceive the word of God and how the Word of God is perceived through me, because again, that's going to have an effect. And then it speaks of incorruptibility. That simply means no wax. Back then, in those days, they would sell pottery, and if pottery had a crack or defect, they would fill it in with wax. And it would look pretty good. It would look like anything else, but that was corrupted. It was corrupted because it had a crack, and sooner or later, it would show its imperfection. The crack would would either continue on, it would continue to spread, or you've had this pitcher, and it's been filled with wax. And it would hold water for a while, but what happens when you put hot water? What happens when the heat gets turned up? Well, when the heat gets turned up, the wax melts and kind of falls apart. What happens when the heat gets turned up in your life? Because, see, we can put wax on. We can put on that Christian faith. We can do that so easily, but what happens, and it's the true test, 
what happens when the heat gets turned up? Does your Christian face fall off when that happens and we see the face of the, the worldliness? If so, it's corrupt and looks, well, looks can so easily fool. These things have to be part, have to be part of my soul, have to be part of the person with who I am. Verse 8 speaks of sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. When it comes to our speech, because again, remember what Jesus said, our speech is going to be an example of our heart. It's going to be an expression of your heart. What comes out of your mouth is going to reveal what's inside. When it comes to speech, the example here is is that what we should say should be irreproachable and irrefutable. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It means set him apart from everything else and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. And when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Inreproachable speech. That means sound, healthy. The things that I speak of the doctrines of Christ would be sound and healthy. This is to know and to understand what you're talking about. When your child comes and asks you a biblical question, sound speech does not say, go ask your mother. Sound speech, if you don't know, says, let's find out together. But it's to be prepared, and I guarantee you, if you're prepared, it's one of the, 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 the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance the things that are necessary to be brought to your mind when the opportunity is given. And so when the opportunity is given, if you've spent time in your word, God's going to bring those things back for just the situation. So are you prepared, and have you the confidence to give a reason for the hope that is in you when somebody asks, and how much more so either a child, again, somebody less mature than you are? If you expect them to do it, you had better to have done it and continue in it to do it. Because again, that's part of the hypocrisy. If you're not spending time in the Word of God, that's the hypocrisy that is going to be displayed to them, and they're not going to spend time in the Word of God. Irrefutable speech means to be impeccable and unpickable. They can't poke holes in your beliefs. I encourage people, if there's something, if you have an issue with one of my teachings, if you're able to poke a hole in something that I said, come back and talk to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God's displayed something to to you that I made a mistake somewhere. I try to go through my studies, and if there's any holes there, I try to get them filled. I usually review my studies, and I look look at them from the standpoint that I'm challenging myself because I want to make sure that the things I say up here, well, if I come up here and say something and say something that's just flat out not true and you realize that, and especially if I say two things or three, it's just going to throw the whole thing into question. And so everybody makes mistakes. There's no doubt about that. But as much as possible, I want to give you the word of God with complete integrity and genu- genuineness of effect in your lives and the lives of all those who, who hear it. Same thing, I write devotions and I post them on uh, the Facebook page. Got to make sure that the things that are written there are things that are true to the best of my ability so that, well, somebody can't come, come up against it and start poking holes or coming up against these things because these things are not true. 
And so these things, Paul is encouraging Titus to be diligent in these things because now the younger people are not the future church. The younger people are the current church. The older people are not what the church used to be. The older people are what the church is. But the younger people are the future leaders of the church. And the future leaders have to be trained up just as the current leaders have been trained up. How should we keep at it? How does all this work? Paul spoke about it pretty clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man or a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children or less mature, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things or mature in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share and causes growth to the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now the thing about this section of scripture is, it says, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When does that happen? Never. You never arrive. Paul, what's the one thing you do for getting those things behind? and continuing to push forward in that higher calling in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul said he did that, he was in prison, but he continued to push forward. How much more so with the freedoms that we have in this country should we be pushing forward in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no reason why we would not have revival in this country. I know why we don't, but there's no excuse in the sight of God. We've got unlimited freedoms to live the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to train up the future generations, and the only reason that we will not see revival in this country is because of our failure to do the things that we talked about, not just today, but last week as well. We've got to be diligent about these things, and if we're diligent about these things, we're going to leave a mark in the life of the future generation. Now, this is a good mark. Because either way, the future generations are going to be marked, either by Jesus Christ or the Antichrist. And you know what? Decision's ours. Yeah, they're going to be responsible before the Lord, but we're responsible before the Lord in training up this future generation. Now, obviously, Jesus knew this. Jesus understood this, and he understood the necessity for unity. We're going to celebrate the communion meal right now, and so as we're preparing to do that, I'm going to go to a scripture that we don't usually talk about, but it does speak of this Last Supper. But in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now, it's just before the Lord is to be crucified upon the cross. And again, this is one of his last messages that he's leaving for his disciples. Disciples then, but throughout the ages even to here today. In Matthew 26, verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the uh, disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is an important thing. This is something that Jesus knows that he needs to do. Now, 
if something's important to the Lord, ought it not be important to us? And my encouragement in that here today, don't take this lightly. Don't take this as just throwing back some stale crackers and some apple juice. There's significance in this simply because Jesus lent significance to it. Jesus lent importance to this. And so we've got to understand and we've got to know what is happening here, these things, what they represent. And as we partake of them, understanding that this is a, well, again, there's very few touchable and tangible things that the Lord has given it because the just shall live by faith. But he thought this important enough for have us, to have us partake, in of, partake of it throughout all of the ages. And so as we lend, or as he's lent that importance to it and we've received that importance to it, we've got to make sure and know and understand the importance that he placed upon it. Look at verse 26. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. It's a picture of the body. That Christ came. Christ came in human form. He was fully human so that we would be able to know, that we would be able to comprehend who he is. Verse 27. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which was shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And the cup that Jesus was speaking of was the cup of judgment that he was to drink from. He's receiving the judgment from us all. But he says because of that, because he's drank from the cup of judgment, we are now able to drink from the cup of grace. It's only because of what Christ had partaken of that we are to be able to partake of this as well. The juice is symbolic of the death of Jesus Christ that has washed our sins away. Verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is he speaking of there? He's speaking of a presence, present, and he's speaking of a future. He's giving them that hope, that trust in God for the future, that I'm drinking, we're having this fellowship now. And we look at it, we say, yeah, Christ came. There's no doubt about that. But he's also saying, you're going to see me die upon the cross. You're going to see some hard things. I'm going to be scourged beyond recognition. But understand, there's going to come a time in the future, we know this to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, but there's going to come a time in the future that I will sit down again with you. Now he's speaking of him physically sitting down with them in a physical manner. And so really he's talking about, well, the the faith that we have that's based upon the, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the future and a hope that we have. And so as we, we, we do these things, this meal that we're to partake upon until he comes again, we do so understanding that Christ came, Christ is with us now, and we will be with Christ in the future. And so don't just partake of this meal as a routine, but understand the necessity of remembering, remembering the great promises that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word that instructs but also this meal that brings us together. There's nothing, we just experienced that in the holidays, there's nothing like getting together for family time, for a family meal, and Lord, that's what's happening here. Lord, we've all came into this, your, this Christian life the very same way, this family the very same way. It was through faith, and Lord, what you have done, and we believe that, and these beliefs become part of who we are, and we consume these things. 
But Father, we also have that great promise in the future. Lord, back in 1 Corinthians, we are told to not partake of this meal in an unworthy manner. And Lord, we've got to constantly go back to that and revisit that so that, Lord, we're sure that we are not partaking of this meal in an unworthy manner. That, Lord, I don't have unrepentant sin in my life. That if I do, that I would just simply take the time to repent. Because as we repent, you're quick to forgive. That, Lord, if I have something against one of my brethren, Father, that I would work that out, that I would get together and see that relationship restored. And worst of all, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, instead of eating and drinking because of grace, it's as if you were in that Garden of Gethsemane and you took that cup from the Lord and you drank from that cup of judgment because it's to take of these elements through unbelief. And so communion meal, it saves no one, but all those who are saved partake of this communion meal. And so if you're partaking of this meal in an unsafe state, you need to examine your heart. Is God speaking to you even right now? Is God telling you that you need to get right with me? Is God speaking to you that if you partook of this meal, that you would be doing so as I've instructed you not to do? And you'd be partaking in an unworthy manner. As with all things, whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. And so if God is speaking to your heart right now, if, if you've yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe there's just some area of your life that you just need to repent, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, just lift your hand up, and I'm just going to acknowledge it, and we're just going to pray for you so that you'll be able to partake of this meal. Is there anybody here? Is there anybody here who needs a touch from the Lord? Is God speaking to you? I see your hand off to my right. I see your hand to my left. Is there anybody else? Your hand in the back and your hand to my left. Is there anybody else that you just know that if you partake of this, for whatever reason, you'd be partaking in an unworthy manner? If you're out in the fellowship hall, you can raise your hand before the Lord. He sees you there. Anybody else before we start? Don't let this moment get past you. Anybody else? You can put your hands down. Father, you've seen these hands that have gone before you. And Lord, those who have lifted their hands, it's an expression of their heart. They're lifting them to you, Father, and they're desiring to receive a touch from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and guide their souls in this manner. That, Lord, if there's anybody who's raised their hand for salvation, that, Lord, it's, again, that's all that's necessary. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Father, if there's anybody here who's raising their hands for repentance, I pray, Father, that, that Lord, they would receive of that washing that you have for them. And so, Lord, as we celebrate this meal, once again, we look back, we see the cross. We look today and we see the reality of you in our lives. But, Father, we also think of the future, that day that we will be in your presence. We thank you for how all-encompassing this meal is. Bless us as we partake of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and form two lines. Uh, come on up.